was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who've turned the whole world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Please be seated. Pray one more time before we look at the word. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Help us now, uh, fallen humans, needing your Holy Spirit even as we interact with your text. Help us to learn, help us to be challenged, help us to be comforted, exhorted, convicted. Uh, You know our needs and you're loving. So through your Holy Spirit, help us now as we interact with your text. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the book I'm listening to now, it's a history book. It's not quite as exciting as some of the other things that I, I listen uh, and I have to say I catch myself looking and seeing what's next on my list as I work through systematically. Um, uh, you guys remember pop quiz from your history days uh, back when they were teaching history, back when you were kids. Battle of Hastings, what year? <laughs> Did you have to learn that? 1066, it was William the Conqueror, and I'm listening to a a book about the Norman Conquest, and what it's almost really about is how we look at history without much of a record of history, and the interpretations of of things, and it's, it's very, very, very interesting at points because of that, and by the way, this isn't in my notes, but I, I can see why people can hit such an intellectual level where they question everything in history and the sources where it can become a stumbling block humanly for them to even accept the Bible as history. And I think you need to say, I've been given a great gift. Not only did God come in and save me and open my eyes to see the eternal plan of salvation and see my need of of repentance and my need of trust in Jesus for forgiveness, he also gave me something that the world doesn't have. He gave me a, a faith and a belief and a trust in history. I can read the Bible and say that happened. God said it did. And there's a supernatural understanding of that. Whereas uh, with these times of the Normans, we have have a, uh, a piece of art that kind of depicts the history. We have something called the Anglo Saxon Chronicle that talked a lot about what was happening in England at the time when the Normans came in. It changed history. One entry, one year, uh, 
I think this was about the 1080s or so, um, as it talks about the aftermath. And there's one sentence at the very start, and it says, there was a very bad famine in the land. But it doesn't elaborate on that. It talks about some machinations in the king's court with the brother trying to take him over and all of that stuff. And I thought, boy, did the people experiencing the famine care so much about what was happening in the king's court? What about the regular, what about us common people? How did we live? Or you hear about Stalingrad and you say there's a turning point in in a great war and that has affected all of our lives and the world's life forever, what happened there. But then you read the individual stories of the people licking the wallpaper paste off the walls and eating shoestrings and even leather shoes and billfolds as they starve to death. And you say, wow, there is a macro and there's a micro. And as we read the scriptures, we could easily look at Paul's missionary journeys and pull out the maps and look. And boy, we want to see what did God do as the gospel was spread and thrust through the world. We also need to understand the micro, the individuals. And and there's a couple of things that I hope we take away or, or get reminded of this morning. But one of those things is the same God who's in charge of the world. You know, we say God is in heaven and all is right with the world, and however we say that. Understand that the same God involved in the whole world cares about you. And your history is as important as that history. It's all intertwined. You know, I, I thought about, yeah, I've been thinking about this little riff of, it's going through my head. Does God include us in his sovereign plan or does God involve us in a certain plan? The answer is going to be both. But what's the difference between just being included and being part of it uh, as somebody who's swept along with the tide of history? But what about God's using us, involving us in, in his working out of, 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 of his perfect will. And this morning, I think most of us would probably not identify with Paul. I certainly wouldn't. I, I do in certain places, and when he says, follow me as I follow Christ, and I read his writings, and I, uh, the more I spend time reading his inspired uh, words, God's words through his mouth, maybe I understand him. But I think most of us and me, I'm like Jason, or I'm like the brothers, or I'm like those not a few of the leading women who came to Christ. Somebody referenced a book uh, about uh, the, these, the Hellenistic times and these wonderful, strong, independent women. Uh, the whole world wasn't uh, absolutely patriarchal and all as, as we've been led to believe there were in places. But these uh, women that came to Christ, this made a huge impact in their culture. They didn't come because their husbands did. It would have said the husbands and wives and the families singled them out as believers. And maybe we identify with them. And in fact, this morning, I'd like you to put yourself kind of in their shoes. You're living in this place called Thessalonica or Thessalonica, I think it was read to me as a kid, Thessalonica, I think it's Thessalonica is, is the, the best pronunciation, but either way, you're in that place and you're either a Jew who goes to the synagogue and you've got a healthy respect for the scriptures or you're what they call a God-fearer 
You're somebody who's kind of rejected some of the foolishness of the culture and the many gods that are out there, and you're curious about what's going on with this one god, this thing. And all of a sudden, a man comes into town. Two men come into town with their entourage. And, and this guy gets up, and you go to the synagogue on a, on a Sabbath day to worship the Lord. And he stands up, and he does what Jesus did when he spoke in the synagogue. He spoke like something you've never heard before. You've trusted this Old Testament scripture. You've believed in it. You've tried to put the pieces together. You've even probably tried to live according to it. You probably, certainly you have. And all of a sudden, what does Paul do when he comes? He blows your mind. He knocks your socks off or whatever we would want to say. He, uh, he dazzles you. He's, he, it's, 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 it's quite the moment. Understand that these were real people like us. And they were there hearing a message. And as a result of responding to that message, uh, there were actions, uh, their lives were changed um, as a result of it. Two points this morning uh, about Paul's message. One, Jesus is the king who died and rose again. Two, Jesus is the king who is mightier than any king who ever existed. Jesus is the king who died and rose again. This was the new message they heard from their scriptures. Paul opened the scriptures, it says. He opened the Bible. He wasn't just giving his opinion of it. He opened the scriptures. They would have been hearing the scriptures, having it read. Uh, There's a reason why in our worship services, if if the sermon's coming from the New Testament, we'll give an Old Testament reading. The sermon's coming from an Old Testament, we give a New Testament reading. We want us to hear the scriptures. Uh, I think in our culture, we don't hear the scriptures enough. I don't soak in the scriptures enough. I wish I did more. Paul did not say, forget the scriptures and everything you've known about God because I have something brand new for you. His message about Jesus was not extra biblical. It was rooted and grounded in scriptures. But he also didn't say, suspend all you know of logic. There's a word in there. What did he do with the scriptures? He reasoned with them according to the scriptures. He gave them clear logic from the scriptures. Think about how even their familiarity with the scriptures Their trust in the scripture as God's word was something that God had been using to prepare their hearts for that moment, those three weeks when they would make a decision. He reasoned with them according to the scriptures. It's been leading to this. Think about the people who, to use biblical language and more Baptist language like I heard growing up, think of the people who got saved during this three weeks. Say, well, it's just a few people in a place called Thessalonica. Well, maybe to us, but not to them. Those people still exist. Those Jews who believed and joined Paul and Silas. Those many uh, Greek, devout Greeks. Those where it says not a few of the leading women. That means many of the leading women. Well, they're dead but they're alive. 
and they're alive in heaven, and they've been worshiping God in heaven for 2,000 years. And had that time period not happened and them not make that decision, they'd still be dead. They'd be in, have been in hell for 2,000 years. So I'd say it's a pretty important uh, time in their lives, right? Just like every time you hear a sermon as a non-believer, and you make a choice. Or just like the time when you heard the word and there was a time in your life where you said, I repent, I place my faith in Jesus as my propitiation, as my sacrifice. I am responding to whatever's going on inside of me. You don't have to wait till you die for that to have been the biggest choice in your life. Well, that was heaven or hell for you forever. What a time that was. And this was a key time in the life of this group of people. And they responded to the message. And Paul's message as he reasoned from Scripture was this. Jesus had to die to be that sacrifice. Jesus had to rise again from the dead to show and, and, and to conquer death. And he is the Christ. People from the outside can mock. You believe in the big tooth fairy. You believe in the big Santa Claus. You believe in the big Easter bunny. You believe in Jesus. used to be a science magazine I would read. I'm not a scientist. The surprises are real scientists in here, whoever you are. It was called Omni. And it was like a combination of science articles and science fiction. And I, I read it for the science fiction. But I, I can, it was in college. It's long out of print. But there was a little cartoon caption. Oh, these guys were so clever and so funny, weren't they? There's the Easter Bunny and Santa and Jesus having a cocktail and talking together. Oh, that's, that's profoundly clever. Jesus is just like those guys. Or the Don Henley song where he said, I saw Elvis on, or Jesus on a plane, or maybe it was Elvis. They both looked the same back during the rumors of, of Elvis didn't really die and all that. Oh, boy, that's something... Yeah, mock us. Mock us if you want. But here's some logic for you. Here's some reasoning from Scripture. And maybe when Paul writes that the wisdom of the world is not like the wisdom of, 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 the, of, of the Christians. Hey, where, where did we come from? God created. What happened? We sinned. Through one man's sin in the world and death through sin. Therefore, all of sin. Logically, God, as uh, James Kennedy put it, God does not want to punish us. And I'm awkward. Those are awkward words on the one hand until you, you, you hear the phrase, God is not willing that any should perish. God must punish sin. We have sin. Logically, what happens to our sin then? We're going to, some people say, well, I'll be logical. I'll just do more good things than bad things. How do you even know if you could ever do more good things than bad things when we're so tainted with sin that even our good things have mixed motives? You know, just because people use the phrase virtue signal uh, now and it's become part of our nomenclature doesn't mean that there wasn't such a thing. <laughs> There's always been virtue signaling. We've all done it. Try to impress somebody try and drop a name, try and 
uh, drop a little hint of how we have our devotional life and all that. We, we think we're so good. In our flesh, we could never even, even if it was possible, if God said, here's a way, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Even if that was a way of salvation, <laughs> none of us could achieve that if we really understand what good is and what bad is. Right? So logically, following the logic, there has to be some sort of an outside source. If God really does want a relationship with his people, there has to be an outside righteousness. The old uh, reformer, some of our church fathers referred to this as the Puritans, alien righteousness, outside righteousness. Something has to come from outside of us because we cannot generate it. And Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures and he went back into the scriptures and he showed them what the sacrifices were, what this was, what this was, what this was. He showed Jesus, uh, we don't know exactly what, uh, which passages. If I'm a betting man, I'd say Isaiah 53 would have to be in there somewhere about the suffering servant, the one we use for, for, for community table, but it's all over in scripture. You know, it's like a shooting fish in a barrel, as they say. Uh, just, just open the scriptures, there's Jesus there. Old Testament, some way it's pointing, it's the person and work of Christ. And he came in that day to these people who were predisposed to scriptures and to a one God, uh, and he opened those scriptures and showed them what the scriptures meant. Think of what that did for their hearts. Think of what when the light bulb went on. Now, we're Reformed, we're Calvinists here, we know God was the was the driver on that, but, but talking on our human level, think about when it made sense to them and they got saved. What are some of these passages that we have from our scriptures? I took New Testament ones that, that say the same thing. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Can it be any more clear than that? We can say it's not true, but we can't say that the Bible doesn't say it. Right? We can deny the Bible is truth, but we can't say the Bible doesn't say that when Jesus walked up and John the Baptist, who was also foretold in the Old Testament, when Jesus walked up that, that, that John didn't say, behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, his person and work. He didn't say, behold the Lamb of God who's going to set such a great example for us and a pattern how we all have to live until they're going to kill him for being a good guy. Didn't say that. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One I reference a lot during communion because it's just like if you have to sum up the gospel to me, this is the clearest. God made him who knew no sin, that would be Jesus, to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. That's logical. You can disagree with it, but you can't say that's not logical. You can say it's stupendous that God would do this, but it's the truth, and it's logical. The Bible in the Old Testament says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was hung on that cross. In their language, he hung on the tree. He hung, he hung there. He bore the curses. I would imagine Paul might have used that one. How about this one from Revelation? So 
clear in what the Bible says. You can disagree with it. You can say it's not true, but you can't say it says something that it, that it, it doesn't say something that it says. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's clear, and it's logical. And Paul reasoned with them from Scripture. And they got saved. There's a book I reference every now and then. Uh, When I take my study week sometime, I'm going to read this. I've I've given it a good run. Echoes of Scripture in the Writings of Paul by a guy named Rutherford. Now, he's clear at the very start. He says, even though I say the writings of Paul, he says, that's Scripture too. He, He comes at it from that. But he's saying, understand when Paul was writing you look, and, and some of us have these study Bibles we paid for, and you have the little footnotes, and it references back to the Old Testament. He's saying, those are all there and good, and you can look. You can go online. You can go to any one of these good Bible sources, and you can see where everything that Jesus did played out, or his life played out, was the scriptures that foretold it. But he's saying, even more than that, you see it in Paul. Even the stuff we don't reference oh one of the great one of the great actors of all time who was born you would say he was born to play one role and no one can ever play this character from literature on the screen like this one did Peter Ustinov tried Uh, who's the other guy that plays uh, Wallander I forget his name that actor he's a good actor he did one. But David Suchet as Poirot, an Englishman playing a Belgian detective, had it down. And you can see if you start to watch from the early ones, and, and, and I think the best part of the whole box set was seeing his interview. And David Suchet became a Christian, by the way, later on in his life. He's, but he said, and I think he was actually talking about his own relationship with, with Christ, but he was, he, they said, what made you... The seminal actor. What made you Perot? He said, I didn't just read the scripts that the scriptwriters wrote as they adapted Agatha Christie's books. I went back and read the books. He said, I got to know the author. And I could live it because I knew the author. And I knew not just how the, the, the scriptwriters who also had read these things, but I knew it and I was him. And you see Paul in his life, who knew Jesus, who'd had that conversation. Why are you persecuting me? Uh, Why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you doing this? Who are you? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And you see all of Paul's life, he knew these scriptures. He was versed in them. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, which would be the equivalent in our day. He had like two or three degrees from uh, big name uh, universities or whatever he had. He had, the, he, had, he had the intellectual heft even as he was murdering and, and killing Christians. But when God converted him, he didn't wipe all that away from his memory. He took that 
and Paul could look at the scriptures and say, here's Jesus here. That song I quote too much, Vigilantes of Love Song, where the guy says on that Gideon's Bible, there's blood spilled on each and every page, and he's talking about a ratty old hotel room, which is a metaphor for this world, but he's saying, uh, this is bleak, it's, it's terrible, the decorations are bad, I, I don't like what I'm hearing around through these paper-thin walls, I'm feeling unsafe and dangerous, but I reach in and I pull out that Gideon's Bible, and he says there's blood spilled on each and every page, and if you're just listening to it as a non-Christian, you just think, that's, that, that's, a, that's a bad hotel, give, give me my money back, give me out of here. But when he's talking about that, he's saying, throughout Scripture and what your Bible is about, is about Jesus Christ shedding his blood becoming a ransom for his people. And he went in there, and the Holy Spirit was working through his words. They heard uh, with their preacher, uh, and, and they were converted. And his message is this. He is the king. Later on, Paul would write two letters probably more, but two letters that were inspired by God and are part of our scriptures. First Thessalonians and then the second Thessalonians, of course. Uh, and he described that day in writing back to this church. In First Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10, as he's recalling to them about these early days, he said, and about the effect of them, he said, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. It's like, I'm out of a job because your faith is real and genuine and they're all talking about the gospels that lived through you. We don't even need need to say anything. Then he goes on to say this, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. The kind of reception during those three weeks where I went there and you received us and we talked in homes and Jason's house and others. The kind of reception we had among you. And this is the key. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's his synopsis of these days. And the result, as we've said in verse 4 of chapter 17, some of them, some of those Jewish people, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. There is a joining together of God's people. No Lone Ranger Christians. Uh, that is, that's the exception. I don't even know of a, of an exce- of a case where God didn't save somebody and say, okay, you don't need to join a church. I don't know of a case in Scripture. Somebody says, well, the thief on the cross, he didn't get baptized, take communion, but I'm like, well, <laughs> that's kind of before all this church stuff happened, and so uh, I, I think that's in a different category uh, than, than Christians here as churches were being planted. There's a joining, and these people got saved, they were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas. It says, and also, um, many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And they were cutting a, a path across all of culture. That's what God does. You don't have to be 
lower class in order to be saved. You don't have to be middle class to be saved. You don't have to be higher upper class to be saved. You don't have to be a man. You only can be a saved if you're a man. You don't have to be a woman. You don't have to be whatever race or gender or history or uh, melanin in your skin. You don't have to. There's no test like that. God saved, and it cut across classes in this day just like it does in our day. The text then reinforces to us how great our King Jesus is compared with those kings that rule over this people in this finite earthly realm. So there's this little church plant that's going there. And what happens? People get mad. We want to understand here as we move toward the end of this sermon that Jesus is greater than King Caesar or any King Caesar that's ever existed. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, as we rightly call him. It says, But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out, them being Paul and Silas, out to the crowd. Man, we want them. Get them out here. We'll tear them limb from limb. We'll beat them up. We'll give them what for. We'll leave them for dead. We'll take care of this. We'll stop this little problem. Out of jealousy. We're not allowed. We better be very careful if we ascribe motives to to each other, to other people. We can't look on the heart. We don't know why people do things. Better to deal with the facts and not, not assume motives. Whenever I've assumed motives, usually I've projected, as they say, and and they did this, and if I had done what they did, it would have been because I was such and such, and so that's why they did it. Not necessarily so. But when the Bible says they were jealous, that's God who does look at our hearts and God who does know our motives. We can say, honestly, they were jealous. There was a crowd. There was a tension. There was some jealousy there. When it says the Jews, it doesn't mean every Jewish person because we know Jews were Christians. When the Bible talks about the Jews, uh, in this case, it's really talking about uh, the religious authorities, the leadership there. Those Jewish leaders that had operated that synagogue were jealous. But they didn't say, we're jealous so we would like you to punish them for disloyalty to Caesar. They didn't give their true motive when they dragged them before the courts. And people don't. They incited a riot. Wicked men of the rabble. Uh, one translation, lazy men, good for nothings. Uh, there are people like that that you can pay to riot if you want. Or you can incite to riot. People that are quick to believe any story and get mad. The Bible tells us to be slow to wrath and slow to speak and all of those things. Uh, there is enough quick, quick to wrath people, people around with boredom in their lives, they're going to get mad and they get stirred up easy. We see it in our day. Hey, same thing. People are the same. Nothing new under the sun. And they found them and they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar. Their jealousy caused this. And they deliberately behind the scenes pulled the strings to get people stirred up. They attacked the house of Jason. They wanted Paul and Silas, but they couldn't find them. Oh, was Paul a coward? Paul and Silas, were they cowards sneaking away? 
wimps. Come on, go out, face them. Well, you know what? There's something about living to fight another day. Their calling isn't to get killed by that torn limb from limb for the Thessalonians. And maybe by going away, they spared Jason's life and everybody was housing them. It deflated the situation. When it's time to, 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 to take your stand and, and die for your faith, you do it, but you choose it. They had the persecutions, uh, and the church has had a series of them. It just kind of rolls around and comes around and rolls around. Here in America, it's been pretty easy on us Christians. But uh, throughout the world, there's been persecutions, and that's where we get that phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What the early church did, this is my understanding, but you have to take, uh, take our church history Sunday school class coming in the fall, and maybe it'll get corrected, but this is my understanding, is that after it was all over, they honored the martyrs who died for their faith, but they did not honor the ones who said, I'm a Christian, kill me. The ones that went to, went to, to the persecution just to be a martyr. It's like, don't be a, don't be a martyr. Be a martyr by accident. Be a martyr because it catches you, not because you walk into that. And Paul and Silas did the right thing. They left to share the gospel. Uh, Paul was going to die for his faith later. He did. That wasn't the time. So they couldn't find him. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, it says. You see them. They couldn't find those guys, so they, they grabbed the next best thing, the homeowner, some of the brothers, and they said, they didn't say it, they shouted it. These men who've turned the world upside down have come here also. Jason has received them. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar. They're saying there's another king, Jesus. And so you see an unbelieving synagogue joining forces with the riffraff and the rabble of the world, joining forces with the government to put some persecution on the, the new Christians. Sound familiar? But did they lie? Did they lie when they said these people are teaching there's another king, Jesus? No, that was the truth. They were teaching that. That's the Christian message. The Christian message is we, we render to Caesar what is Caesar's. We live in this world, but we don't bow down to this world. Of course, they didn't reveal their own motives. They took a soundbite and they made it seem like treason. The people in the city authorities were rightly disturbed by this. Because they want conformity. You go along. They want to know what everybody's doing and you all do the same thing and nobody gets out of line. Get out of line, the man come and take you away. Right? So think about it. They were saying, these guys, they're starting something different. They're against Caesar. Christians were not going to play the little worldly games anymore. They were going to say things like Peter had said earlier, we ought to obey God rather than man. They were going to say things like Paul would say later in contemplating his own death for Christ, where he said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain are the things that you value so much we don't value. I heard this as I was listening to some church history. Uh, 
when they were throwing the people to the lions. And they didn't just throw Christians to lions. They threw everybody. Everybody wasn't one of them. And it was a good show. But man, it's like if you're watching a, oh, what's that new fighting? You got to got to pay to watch these guys bloody each other up. It's a little more than boxing, more intense. But you have different levels of fighters, MMA fighters. And some of them, they'll put on for free the lower card. Some of them, you got to pay like 80 bucks to watch this, you know, McGregor guy from Scotland or whatever pummel this other guy. Um, the Christians versus the Lions were like the undercard. That was like the cheapo because the Christians weren't terrified of death. And the Christians did not fight like the other gladiators fought. Because Christians said, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Think about it. There would be a penalty for things. Paul wrote back to the Thessalonians. And he did say, Christ is greater than any earthly ruler. He said in 1 Thessalonians 5, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. He's saying this nice little culture that Caesar's got, this uh, conformity, this uh, uh, control, this uh, everybody's doing their thing. He's saying that's going to end. And you don't even know when it's going to end. Boom. And the real king is going to be the real king. Essentially he's saying even Caesar has to stand in front of God and give an account for his life as do all of us. And that's disruptive. That goes against the narrative, uh, the narrative of Caesar in control. Uh, that goes against that we're all in this together, right? We're all, we're all in this together, except we're not. The soft totalitarianism that we face now, our Caesar, our system, that people worship, that we worshiped before we came to worship the true God, that we might even be tempted to worship now and lure into it, is not going to last. The group think will not win. Here's the thing. If they'd have left Jason and that group alone, they could have been good citizens, even not falling for the lies of of, of totalitarianism. They would have loved. It says they did love. It was a reputation. They would be good. Christians are salt and light. We are good to people. We want to be Christ-like to people. We want to treat people in a way that honors God. But I think as people weigh it, they say, they're just too weird for us. They're just not conforming to us. And what did they do? Well, you could say slap on the wrist. We don't know how much money they took from them. But it says when they'd taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Letting them know, we can tax you. We can take as much money as we want. We can bring you back here anytime. Give us money as security. Give us this. They let them go, but they let them know, we're always watching you. We've got you under our thumb, and we can come in whenever we want. 
application conclusion as we wrap this up this morning. One, the gospel is part of the rational understanding of Scripture that God gives us. Back to that point. The gospel makes sense. You're a sinner. Inside of you, you know there's, there's, there's a not-rightness with God. It's instinctive. A person, was it kind of Voltaire, somebody, one of them that talked about the God-shaped vacuum inside of everybody that, that we're trying to fill, and only God can fill it. And it's rational and it makes sense. You can't save yourself. You need outside help. Second, the person and work of Jesus Christ are central to Scripture. If you don't understand this, then you can be religious, even called a Christian by others and calling yourself a Christian. But you can be religious but not be a Christian in the biblical sense. That's possible. Third point is like it. It is possible to have a healthy respect of the Scriptures but not be truly a Christian. And the consequences are disastrous. Think of what it would be like to have grown up in a church to come hear the gospel every week, to have a home where the Bible is read and reject it and go to hell forever and think of what's in your mind then. Consequences are disastrous, even if you have a healthy respect for scriptures but are not one who has repented and asked forgiveness and trusting in Jesus. Fourth, positive point. Your story, whether you are a religious person or irreligious, whether you're male or female, is wonderful. And like Jason, your name is known by your Heavenly Father. Your story of salvation, how God saved you. Back in the old Baptist days in Iowa, we'd have testimony time. Some Sunday nights, testimony time. Stand up and tell how you, how you got saved. You know, we'd, we'd maybe phrase it not as precise theologically, as they would at Reformed Theological Seminary. What happened? And people would get up and talk about what their life was like and and where they were when they got saved. And everybody would be happy. We'd all get to hear these stories of God's work in the lives of all the people in the congregation. Beautiful. Your story. God knows your name. Fifth, Jason's earthly house was threatened, but he's now in his heavenly home, and there's no threats there. No mob to surround the place that Jesus prepared for him. And when Jason breathed his last breath and went to heaven, if you will, in that place, no mob going to show up there. He's going to say, what time's worship? All, all the time. <laughs> okay. And there he is. However it works in heaven, we don't even know. We just know Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place. We know his place that he lives in and dwells in up there is not under any threat of attack for him being a Christian. And so my conclusion for that is think more about your heavenly home than your earthly home. Six, said this a little bit earlier, jump the gun. Caesar today is a godless government controlling public education and entertainment and all media. It's powerful. That's our Caesar. That's the soft totalitarianism we live under. It can destroy you whenever it wants, if it wants. But wait, it cannot destroy you. It can only get your stuff. It can only get your earthly reputation, but not your reputation with God who loves you and knows you and called you and saved you. Can't even really get your body. It can get your physical body, but they can't destroy your 
soul. Caesar's not that strong. Don't fear them. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That would be God. I wrote lastly, but there's one little point after that. But I said, not least, this is good for living life in these uncertain days. How do we live then as Christians? Boy, this is bleak. This is terrible. This is no fun. Well, when Paul wrote back to the Thessalonians, this might be the best advice for all of us and help us turn off the stinking news. All the news, if we can, as much as we can. Listen to this. And maybe this is the one you need to memorize. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 11. He's writing this to the same group of people. Uh, he says, uh, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So the one thing is, love each other. Members of this church, that's your brothers and sisters, that's your family. And there's a, God will even help you supernaturally love and, and get together, but you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. As a Christian, love them. That, that's your family. But he goes on to say this, and this is the part I wanted to draw attention to. Paul said to these Thessalonians under this duress, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to what? Live quietly and mind your own affairs. And work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You don't have to rush out and, and, and storm these places and get all. Live quietly and mind your own business. Live for God. Hey, that's good stuff. Wrapping it up, Paul's follow-up to those verses is that Jesus is coming for you. So keep your sense of perspective. You're going to be okay. You're a Christian. You're okay. You're safe. Jesus is coming. He's going to take care of you. Can, can Jesus do that? Yeah, he can. You're a Christian. You're okay. Calm down. No agitation. Don't, don't, don't get blood pressure over this junk that's going on out there. Just live. Enjoy. You want to go to a ball game? Go to a ball game. Want to play some music on the radio? Play some music on the radio. Just whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God and understand you're okay. You're safe. And just a final reminder as we go to the table, the same God, the very same God who's in charge of the big stuff is also in charge of the little stuff. And I'm not going to insult you or me by saying that our lives are the little stuff. Our lives are the big stuff, and God's in charge of that. Praise his name. Let's pray and go to the table. Lord, thank you for your salvation of us. Thank you for Jesus who shed his blood, who died, who tasted death, who experienced hell, who uh, took our sins upon himself, who experienced that separation on the cross, who rose from the dead, Thank you for who we are in Christ, and we thank you for our Jesus. We thank you for him as our substitute, as our brother, as our friend. Thank you, God, as our true father who adopted us into your family through Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.